Oh, good evening, everyone. My name is Jerome, and I'm a very grateful and very fortunate member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And above all, it's definitely good to be here at the Pacific Group once again. Uh, I assure you, I was not always invited back anywhere. I guess some of my friends here can definitely relate to that. Because, see, I'm not a has-been. I'm a never-was. And alcohol took me to a point in life where getting up just didn't cross my mind. And I only drank the fruit four states. Either I passed out, blacked out, fell out, or my mouth would encourage someone to knock me out. Drunk and disorderly wherever I went. And what separates me from those so-called social drinkers or problem drinkers is the fact that I drank for the effect. From day one in the summer of 1962, going to my first high school dance to hear Hunter Hancock spin some records up at Jefferson High School, him and Omar's was going to get down. And four of my best friends from Vacation Bible School said, there's old Joe the wino, let's get something to enhance this evening with. And I didn't want to seem like no chump, no poop butt, so I went along with the program. <laughs> old Joe asked us, what are you young men having tonight? And I must have heard it from some movie. Whatever you drinking, Joe. <laughs> and old Joe got my favorite drink. Excello white port, right off the top of the shelf, with dust on the bottom. It wasn't a grape in it, it was all chemicals. And I too have experimented with some of the controlled substances, anatol, femabarbital, truanol, or anything at all. But I am extremely grateful to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and the principles and the structure that it has provided for my life. Because I'm from South Central Los Angeles, right here in L.A., and it hadn't, if it had not been for Alcoholics Anonymous, I would either have been dead, locked up, or insane. Because for some particular reason, don't have the complete answer, I was always this quiet, insecure, awkward, irritable, angry, frustrated young man. But that Saturday evening, that Friday evening, drinking that wine, it mellowed me out. And I knew three things the first time I took a drink. I knew I could act, I knew I could perform, and it didn't matter what anybody thought about it. I snapped my finger and said, where has this stuff been all my life? I have found the magic elixir. Didn't have any kind of idea about any spiritual awakening, but it took me closest to nirvana that I had ever been. But later on that night, I was going to find out that crucial ingredient that was going to set my faith until I got in contact with you people. Because I got this old man. My father, who didn't play, he was one of those strict disciplinarians. 
you couldn't come to him and say, oh, uh, I found something and, you know, uh, my buddy gave it to me or he loaned it to me. Oh, you didn't play that. He said, well, take me to where they loaned it and gave it to you, you know. And I come home off of that wine and my good buddies from vacation Bible school plop me up on my father's front door. Strategically leaning on one shoulder because I had the inability to stand up, run the doorbell and laugh. And I don't know if you uh, have any other siblings like I do. I have an older brother that I had a desire to kill for years. He had embarrassed me, ridiculed me, shamed me abused me, and that wine told me when he said, look at the little chump, he's drunk. I say, tonight is tonight. <laughs> oh, it was a rumble in that little old 12 by 12 room, and I fell on my mom's favorite coffee table, smashed it, and she rushed in from the kitchen, and she knew there was going to be violence and mayhem. Because soon as the real man saw the little man in the real man's house intoxicated, because it seemed like I said, my old man didn't take no minutes. And they tried to get me into the garage, and I uh, <laughs> hide me under the house, do something with me. But that wine would not allow me to, to leave that room. And my old man heard the commotion from the back of the garage, wherever he was, and he came into that little old room and he saw his oldest son in this intoxicated state from a distance, and he needed confirmation. He said, boy, come here. And he says, you look like you've been drinking. And he says, blow your breath in my face. And see, you have sponsors when you're out there in the world, don't you? And my sponsors had told me if I took Zinzin and certs, it would deter the aroma of wine. They lie. Because my old man didn't say, go to your room the next morning, or where did you get this, we'll discuss this tomorrow. He read back all six feet two of him, 230 pounds, and put all the thrust and power into his fist and knocked me back into the chair. <laughs> and didn't a tear drop? I say, you marvel man for real. And all I could think is I take this onslaught and this vicious beating was I could act, I could perform, and it don't matter what anybody think about it, and under the influence you don't feel no pain. My faith was sealed. I said, for richer or for poor, better or for worse, through good times and bad, to death do us part. Serious commitment. I ain't giving up my wine for nothing. Because ain't nothing on earth ever made me feel that good and not feel that intense fear and loathing and self-condemnation that I had always felt. Because really, I just lived in total fear. Had no idea why I was afraid, but I was just afraid. And for those brief few moments, in that oblivion that alcohol would cause, I was all right. But my friend was going to turn on me like a vicious dog.
Because in a short time, my old man put me out of his house. Because every time I got a chance, I got drunk. And every time he caught me, he punched me out. And he saw these vicious beatings wasn't going to deter my attitude and my behavior. And he pointed out the fact one particular e evening, sitting at his kitchen table, he said, look, son, I have paid the utilities in this home. The mortgage is paid, so we have an, a place to stay before foreclosure comes. I have provided food for the family. And that's when he got real incensed and angry. And he stood up, and I thought he was going to hit me without any alcohol. And I was a little concerned. He said, you haven't contributed anything to these endeavors, and you are unable to follow my rules and regulations. He says, there's the dough. Let it hit you where the good Lord splits you, and let them let it hit you on the way out. <laughs> See, I didn't have any uh, incubation period in my drinking because I left his house. Arrogant, self-centered, got a Safeway paper sack in my only suit from Zyler's and Zyler, blue on blue pinstripe, and went to my chosen profession of being a hustler. I see there are no hustlers in the room, but I, I, I'm quite sure there are some incognito. Uh, let me explain what a hustler is from South Central L.A. He sells whole blood every 58 days, plasma twice a week, he sleeps in old park cars and under people's house, and he steals the newspapers in front of the Greyhound bus station on San Pedro and Los Angeles Street, and sell them on Spring Street and Broadway over there like he got a paper route. <laughs> and when he gets hungry, he's too prideful to go stand in the mission and hear a sermon. He'd rather go and dig out of a trash can because of his independence. <laughs> and I tell you, those streets will chew you up and spit you out. I was on and off downtown on Skid Row for I don't know how long. And I get sick. I get anemic from selling plasma and whole blood. And I show up in a neighborhood with a coat too long to be short and too short to be long. I was a panhandler, and I would panhandle in front of the market where my mom shopped and her friends shopped and all the members from my mom and dad's church. And I know I would see some of these good upstanding citizens coming to get their groceries. And I'd get me a strategic location. And see, I was a panhandler who was arrogant. I didn't use some of the softer, polished, Salesman techniques some of the panhandlers use today, like when you get refused, oh, thank you, have a blessed day. Oh, I had some blessings for them, all right. Oh, I blessed them and ran and raised. Oh, I don't know how, I don't know how many times I've been arrested. I just stopped counting. Because the police, before it was cruel and unusual punishment, to put people in the paddy wagon. They used to just drive up. I'd know all three ships, and they'd just say, Get in, Jerome. <laughs> 647F, public intoxication, a danger to himself and others.
But like I said, I get in so bad shape. And one of those church members would go and tell my dad or tell my mom. We saw Sonny down there on the corner, Miss Scott, and he looked so bad. He looks like he's dying on his feet. And that would just tear at their heart. Because, see, my mom and dad, although they were poor, they were hard-working people. My mom, my father and my mom had seven kids, and my father helped raise my mom's three sons from a previous marriage when she came to California. So it was ten of us on and off in that house. And I'm my dad's oldest son. That would just kill him to know that I was up there crazy and raving out of my mind. And they'd ask me to come back. And he would plead with me with that fatherly love. Son, why do you do this? Why don't you come on in here and straighten up, fly right, and turn over a new leaf? And I promised him, Dad, I'm going to do it. I'm going to check into school. I'm going to give me a job. I ain't going to hang out on the streets. I don't do it no more. I'm tired. I'm sick. I'm hungry. That'll last for about three weeks. And that insidious idea about that first drink, and I'd be off to the races. And that last time they put me out was in 1969. Uh, I had checked into junior college doing great. Not a dumb person. Never been dumb. Maybe a little inconsistent, but not dumb. I was doing well, and I decided to go to a party with some friends, and these friends had stolen a burglar alarm truck. <laughs> I'm too cool to ride in the burglar alarm truck. I refused. But the back door of that van swung open, and they were smoking some weed in there, and one guy had a half a gallon of Excello white pork. And he said, you know you want some of this. Come on in here. Next thing I know, they were stomping me in the pavement, beating me unmercifully. And my friend was telling me to run. And when I'm in a fight, like I said, you could grease the blow floor, get a bad stick. I ain't running because I have to stand my ground even if I'm losing. It's an honor thing. Beat me to a pump, but I ain't running. You ain't going to say I ran. Oh, man. I was getting a bad end of it. But that wasn't the end. The police came as I was getting up in this drunken stage, and I was... They hit me, and I landed on top of the hood, or I jumped. Now, I assure you, the police car has a different sound going into high pursuit when you own it rather than in it. Oh, <laughs> uh, they flew by the liquor store and everybody was saying, oh, look at Sonny on top of the car, lights flashing. <laughs> Only thing I could think of that I could never be cool again. <laughs> and the police gave me a spiritual awakening. They beat me real bad. Uh, they beat me real bad. Locked me up for felonious assault against a police officer one more time. My dad had to put his house up, get a lawyer, get me out. And when I got on probation, I just went back downtown. And I was there until 1972. 
It was about this time of the year. My brother was getting married. He had came home from college to marry his uh, high school sweetheart. And he had told my mom and dad, since he was getting married in the church, he wanted his oldest brother to be the best man. So they came downtown, and they got me. I hadn't bathed in days. I'm talking about dirt was caked on my feet because somebody had took my shoe. You know, I had long since knew what underwear were, and they cleaned me up. And I was able to uh, stand up and be my brother's best man. There was one thing I didn't like about that, though. When they got their marriage license, there used to be uh, people from the newlywed game and the dating game down at the Hall of Records. That's where they would uh, recruit uh, contestants for the TV show. And my brother and my uh, new sister-in-law thought it would be a good idea for them to recruit me to be on the newly uh, on the dating game. You know. They actually called. And it was kind of insulting for them to ask me to come down and audition for the dating game in the state I was. Because it didn't take no genius to recognize that I was a poor candidate visually for the dating game. I didn't have no teeth, you know. I didn't have no clothes. I was two weeks off of Skid Row. Definitely didn't have any social skills, you know. And I got mad at him. But with something good about that, at the wedding, my mom wanted me to talk to her supervisor's husband, who was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And she insisted that I talk to him before I got drunk, or I shouldn't drink at the wedding, at the reception. And I talked to this man, and he was telling me his story about Alcoholics Anonymous and how it had changed his life. And he told me that what had changed his life to make him recognize that he did, in fact, have an illness and a disease was the fact that he took his newborn child's milk money that his wife had gave him to go purchase milk. He went and purchased wine, and he was drunk and his child didn't have any milk. I could not relate to that because I said to myself, I'm not married, I have no child. <laughs> but if I look closely at the subject, one of my wine gave me some money to go buy 
a small can of pork and beans, and two wieners from the market so we could eat. We were standing in a little old shanty downtown, and we hadn't ate, we had drank. And I got to the market, I looked at the small can of pork and beans and the two wieners, and I said, the heck with the wieners, I'm getting me some wine, she eat the best way she can. You know, she wasn't my wife, but it was her money, you know. And I couldn't identify. But two weeks after that, I was, I was at my wit's end. Couldn't get drunk, couldn't get sober. And that terror settled down. And the only place I know to go when that terror settled down, and I'm suicidal, and I want someone to snuff out my life like a cigarette butt because I don't have the courage, I go check into uh, Hotel Unit 3. Now, let me describe Hotel Unit 3. That's the county hospital psycho ward, 72-hour lockdown hole, Thorazine Shuffle, and the Miller Rail Twist. <laughs> now, it would be insignificant in my story if it were only once. I don't know how many times I have checked in there. But this particular night I checked in there, the lady psychiatrist said I could not get a bed, no matter how suicidal I was, until she saw my chart. And she got somebody at the county hospital to find my chart. And the guy slung it on the desk angrily because it was 2 o'clock in the morning. She must have woke him up to do his job. <laughs> and she looked at this chart and she stopped after about five pages. And I will never forget this woman as long as I live and have breath in me. She looked at me with those sincere, loving, empathetic blue eyes and said, Mr. Scott. Your emotional problems will probably straighten up if you dealt with your alcoholism. I had no idea what alcoholism was or the disease, but she offered me refuge. She said, I want you to commit to going to an alcoholic treatment program for six weeks. And I told her, I'm ready to go. She said, no, I need a commitment from you that you will stay and complete it. And she suggests I think about it until 10 o'clock. And if I decided to go, to be back at 10 o'clock, she would provide transportation and a referral to Camarillo State Hospital. So I have difficulty thinking even today. So I thought, and I thought, and then I remembered that I was on SSI and ATD, aid to the totally disabled. And my game was to play crazy. But since coming to Alcoholics Anonymous, I found out there's a distinct line between playing crazy and being crazy. Sometimes you think you're playing, you done skipped across the line. That's one of the significant reasons why I don't play with my sanity today. <laughs> I guard it as one of my most precious gifts. But anyway, I thought about it. If I go to Camarillo, I have six checks 
in three months. And I could be wino rich, I could get me a little old place, apartment, a stereo, some iridescent blue slacks, and some new shoes. And I'll be back. But I needed someone to hold my checks for me until I got out. And I couldn't think of anybody better to perpetrate this fraud on the United States government than my dad. So I was going to enlist him to hold my mail for me. Oh, surely anyone could trust their father, you know. He wouldn't steal it, would he? I thought maybe he might, but I'll give it a try. So I went there to convince him of this fraud. I told him I was going on a trip, and he wanted to know how you go on a trip with no money. I said I was going to hate Asbury to experience free love because I had heard that was a good place to socialize. But eventually he, he wangled it from me, and I told him I was going to Camarillo to the hospital. And he got kind of upset. He says, I keep all of my crazy kids here with me. I ain't letting them go to no mental institution. But my mom's niece had went there and got some significant help, so she called my aunt, and my aunt called my brother, and my brother called my oldest sister, and they came over there, and they had a family intervention or a conference, and they outvoted my dad. So they were going to take me back up to State of Marengo Street at the county hospital. They had all my little nieces and nephews from daycare and kindergarten. They drove three cars in a caravan. They double parked out there on State and Marengo Street. And as I got, in the, I got out of the car and went in there and got into the state car to go up to Camarillo, all my little five little nieces and nephews, all on cue, said, bye, Uncle Sonny, you know, like I was going on a cruise or, you know. The most depressing day of my life. But anyway, that's where I attended my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, which was going to later be my love of doing institutional work in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because in Ventura County, they staffed a meeting in that mental hospital every night of the week. But I would have nothing to do with AA. I needed something profound to get my gestalt together and become aware my therapist had the answer. But it was this fine black girl on the ward. Her name was Bonnie from New York. <laughs> Baby looked good. And she would invite me to go to the AANA meeting. And I would come from South Central LA and try to be tough and tell her, you could take that AA crap and shove it. But out of lust and loneliness, I went to that AA meeting. <laughs> so I'm a firm believer. It's not what you come for, it's what you stay for. And I get lost in the preamble. And she got out of that hospital and got a job at Tiny Nailers, staying at the Mary Lynn Foundation, rebuilding her life, going to meetings. And she called me up the day I got out of that hospital because I was staying at my parents' house. And she asked me if I wanted to go to a meeting. And I was drunk the very first day I got out of that hospital. I was towed up, and it wasn't very many women calling at my mom's house for me anyway, so I said, it would be a good idea to go to this meeting. So we went to the Wilshire Normandy group, 
And in that drunken stupor, those 200 or 300 people said the Lord's Prayer. And I flashed back just a year prior to that, and I was dying. It was no doubt I was dying. I had been stabbed in the back. The knife had pierced my heart and broken my lungs. I was full of second all F40 and bourbon deluxe. I almost had no blood pressure. And these people who were working on me were saying, she don't have no blood pressure. He ain't going to make it. And as they were wheeling me onto that operating table, and I was going under that anesthesia, I flashed back on that moment, in that meeting, in that drunken stupor. And I tried to remember some prayer that my parents had taught me as a young person. And I could not even remember, now lay me down to sleep. I couldn't even remember I was so honoring and so hateful and so disconnected. I couldn't even say, would you please help me? And I came to out of that surgery. Every member of my mom's praying circle from her church, about 15 women had been sitting there praying all night for me. And I opened my eyes out of that anesthesia. All I could do is say, get your hands off of me and get the hell out of here and leave me alone. And I kept on drinking. And that took me back in that meeting and I would go over to hear them say the Lord's Prayer. I'd be the last one in and the first one out. But I want to hear that prayer. I felt so comfortable here. But I did not believe I could have what you had. Because in my mind, I had went one step beyond recall. Or redemption. Or rehabilitation. But I met a man at that meeting. He was on the door. Little old guy. Ethnically, financially, socially, we wouldn't have never met if it wasn't for Alcoholics Anonymous. And he stuck out his hand. He says, hi, my name is Jack. He says, Jack K is my name and sobriety is my game. Call anytime. And for several months I collected those cards, but I would never call. And I ended up back in Camarillo. And I was sitting in there for my second commitment in 1973 in May, reading the Los Angeles Times business section if I had some stocks of bonds. <laughs> See, I wasn't always a tramp. My psychiatrist had got me a job at International Business Machine. And I had bought one share of IBM stock in the purchase employee purchasing plan in 1969, so I wanted to see if it had split since 1969. <laughs> but it was another young man from South Central Los Angeles that had Jack's car. Jack had been working with this guy named Raymond for months, and Raymond had never been able to stay sober. And Raymond called him collect. Because what a baby goes to the nut house with enough money to call his sponsor on the payphone. 
I don't know many, but maybe he did have some money or maybe he didn't. But he called Jack, and Jack left his home in West Hollywood and drove up to Ventura County some 50 miles to pick up this young man. And Jack and Raymond were leaving, and he spotted me behind the paper. And he eased up behind the paper, and he says, Jerome, what are you doing here? I recognized the voice because he hounded and harassed me at that meeting. <laughs> he had self-reported himself as my temporary sponsor, whether I liked it or not. He recognized I was new, and I needed what they had. If like this large as this room, if he saw me on the other side, he would be right there. How you doing, Jerome? And I had that newcomer line. I'm fine. <laughs> be lying, needing help bad. And he asked me this question. He says, Jerome, what are you doing here? And I jumped up and said, damn, he done followed me to the nut house. <laughs> but he asked me a question. What was I there for? I had no idea in the latter part of May of 1973 why I was in the state hospital for the second time. And he recognized my perplexion and my confusion. And he didn't scold, ridicule me, or belittle me. He says, Jerome, if you do what I do and follow what I follow, you will never have to drink as long as you live. Even if you feel like killing the pain at any cost, you won't even have to drink then. And you will never have to come to a place like this unless you choose to. That's the promise Alcoholics Anonymous offers every sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, or a new person, or someone aspiring to acquire this here structured, spiritual way of life. It promises you the ability to face life on life's terms, not ducking or dodging any of life's issues, and not take anything to affect you from the neck up or the neck down and walk life through life with dignity for yourself and others. And you won't ever have to experience any of the degradation, humiliation, and self-condemnation and the fear that had dogged me every step of my life. I was enslaved by Jerome, and I didn't know how to set myself free. But standing before me that day in May was a man that had the keys to the kingdom. And I have something that will keep me sick, and it kept me sick then. That pride swelled up in me and said, I can't have it. It's impossible. It's unthinkable. So why even try? And that fear just riddled me back in that chair. And Jack didn't ridicule me or belittle me. He said, Jerome, I understand. And him and Raymond left. I got out of that hospital a, a week later, drunk and crazed, went over to my mom's house. My dad is sick with emphysema and heart disease. I attacked him in a drunken rage and sent him to the hospital, beat him, stomped him. They had me arrested and I got out of jail and I came back blaming them for my predicament and my condition. And I saw my aunt, my father's sister, crossing the street. I said, I'll get her too. And I chased her to her house. I thought she was running from me. She wasn't running from me. She was just going to get her snub nose 38. <laughs> and when I saw her come out of that back room with it, 
I went on all fours and turned around, ran around the house, jumped over the fence, down the alley, and hid in the trash can a very long time. Because see, it's one thing I know. People on the streets will say, oh, he's drunk, don't kill him, don't kill him. But you start messing with family, they'll take you out. And I got out of that trash can and I got arrested again. And the judge gave me one day in the county jail. And I was in the city jail in that drunken stupor and I had a spiritual awakening. I began to reflect on the things that I'd heard you say in those eight to ten months when I infrequently came to meetings. And I don't know where I mustered the courage to say to myself or make the commitment to myself that if I got off this glass house floor in this jail, I'm going to make it back to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I left Bouchette Street and I walked and broke into my mom's house, got my brother's clothes, who was back away at school, and my mom asked me why was I in her house, stealing his clothes. And I talked real sassy to her, and she told me something very pertinent. She said, son, you might not be familiar with B.B. King's new record. And she told me, she said, don't nobody love you but your mama, and she might be jiving too. And she said, if you can't come around, don't come around any better. And that's been 25 years, because that day, leaving there, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I tell you, I have an awesome life today. If anything I'm grateful for in the 25 years I've been sober is two weeks ago when my mom was breathing her last breaths, in those last few hours of her life, I was able to stand up and be accounted for. Because I know why I'm here today. I'm here on the strength of her prayers and her love, and the strength and hope of members of Alcoholics Anonymous just like you. Someone who was a has-been and a never-was, I'm rapidly becoming. I took the test for the post office 39 times, and I've been there 20 years. They told me in 1992 that you have to get you a master's degree if you want to keep your job. I went to Jefferson High School where they only had one microscope, and it was broke. I majored in... I majored in agriculture and shop because I wanted to print my own money and grow marijuana. <laughs> With deficient educational schools and full of that fear that I still sometimes have today, but I have a sponsor that believes in walking through fears. This past May, my mom lived to see me get hooded for a master's degree. And I tell you, I will always be grateful for that. And I tell you, I've been telling everybody about my lovely wife who loves me dearly. I have a real good wife today. I had a, a wife before in Alcoholics Anonymous. She wasn't too bad. She was a little shaky and flaky, but she wasn't that bad. You know, I ain't going to knock her. I'll give her a do. I grew a lot. I grew a lot. But my wife, I'm going to say this and shut up. My wife at the age of 46, 
love me enough to tell me, Jerome, you've never had your own child, and I love you to go through this another time at 46. And my son Matthew was born on my mom's birthday, took his first step, today my mom died. And when God takes something, he gives something back all the time. Thank you.